was the real Lady Bird Johnson? That's revealed in the tape she made during her years as First Lady. The tapes, I think, are just an extraordinary indication of her substance and her importance and her awareness of both. Her very first recording of those tapes is dated November 22nd, 1963. It's her first entry. She recorded it eight days after the assassination. And she kept going until January 31, 1969. That's Julia Zweig. We talk with her about her acclaimed book, Lady Bird Johnson, In Plain Sight. Then, after exiting Afghanistan, President Biden is turning his attention to China, implying that China is a serious security threat that the U.S. may have to meet with force. And what I argue is that this is utter nonsense because in the next 20 or 30 years, climate change will be so intense and its impacts on China will be so great that the Chinese military will be too busy filling sandbags to protect Shanghai and other coastal cities from flooding to do anything uh, to threaten the United States. That's Michael Clare. We talk with him about his recent post in The Nation magazine, The Real Existential Threat is Our Overheating Planet. We also hear a clip from our 2020 conversation with Claire about his book on the Defense Department and climate change, All Hell Breaking Loose. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. When the assassination of JFK catapulted Lyndon Baines Johnson into the White House, few among the public knew much about the new president, and even less about the new first lady, Lady Bird Johnson. LBJ had to try to heal a grieving nation. He was confronted with the great defining issues of that time, and we could argue ours, civil rights, income inequality, and military conflict abroad. The person he most leaned on for advice and support was his wife. Lady Bird chronicled her time in the White House in an extraordinary set of notebooks and tape recordings that reveal her centrality to Johnson's work as president. As my guest Julia Zweig reveals in her book based on that chronicle, Lady Bird Johnson, In Plain Sight, the First Lady was deeply insightful and profoundly engaged with the issues of the day. Her highway beautification program, for example, tackled the issue of environmental racism way before environmental racism was even a term. Yet, as protests against the Vietnam War exploded across the nation, this brilliant woman found herself increasingly out of touch. In addition to her brilliant and fascinating book, Zweig has also produced a spellbinding podcast on the same topic using Lady Bird Johnson's own tape recordings. Julia Swig is a New York Times best-selling author, scholar, and entrepreneur. She's a senior research fellow at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight, is her fourth book.
Well, Julia Zweig, welcome to Writer's Voice. I'm delighted to be here with you today, Francesca. Thank you. Now, you've previously authored books on Cuba, Latin America, American foreign policy, and clearly your foreign policy chops helped you in writing this book. Um, you know, Vietnam, the Vietnam War was a very yeah. big part of LBJ's uh, administration. But why did you decide to write this biography of Lady Bird Johnson's years as First Lady? Well, it's a great question because it does seem like a strange pivot to an outsider, I suppose. But I had worked inside of the world of foreign policy uh, for the large portion of my professional career. And that's a place where the gender imbalance is very pronounced. It's that's changing, but at least it was when I was in it. And I was, I live just outside of Washington, DC, have been here for a long time. And kind of the issue of women and power really stuck with me, sticks with me. And I, I realized after so many years of working about on Cuba and foreign policy in Latin America that I wanted to pull back and learn something about women and power, but I didn't have a subject. I just knew that I needed to also pivot intellectually. So when I found out that Lady Bird Johnson had kept her own I call them the other LBJ tapes while she was in the White House and started listening to them and seeing how much her story was missing from the story and conventional wisdom about the LBJ presidency. That just sealed the deal for me. Yeah, and it really is a, a fascinating study you do here of, of someone who I think a lot of Americans, you know, like a lot of first ladies really did not focus on i think you know to the the exception is of of uh, Jackie Kennedy perhaps but lady berg re- really emerges as a a very fascinating figure here um but before we go further i want to ask you why do you call her bird you kind of sh- and and we should say by the way that her real name was claudia nay uh claudia alta taylor um, something I never knew before reading this, but but why do you refer to her as Bird? Well, Lyndon Johnson called her Bird, and people close to her often mimicked that. Um, there's a, a writerly problem that I had too, which was repeatedly referring to her as the First Lady or Lady Bird or sometimes Mrs. Johnson. I just needed, you know, another name to call her. And so I tried to use Bird when I was talking about her in a more the more intimate settings that involved involved Lyndon Johnson as well. Okay. Well that that makes sense. I mean it's it sounds as if you she was a family friend. <laughs> well, maybe that's maybe that's too much, but maybe I started to become, you know, very involved with her, even though she's not alive. So maybe I felt like I had license to call her Bird rather than just Mrs. Johnson or the First Lady or Lady Bird. I think I used all three of those other terms as well. And you mentioned the tapes. So she recorded everything that happened in the White House, um, you know, that she had access to and also kept diaries. So tell us about the person 
who, well, first of all, tell us about these tapes. Um, you know, where are they and how did you come upon them? And and then tell us about the person who emerges from these tapes, her very unique voice. Well, the tapes, I think, are just an extraordinary indication of her substance and her importance and her awareness of both. What she did, well, Lady Bird was a, a journalism and history major as an undergrad in the 1930s at the University of Texas in Austin. And that instilled in her a habit of recording almost maniacally. She always had a little notebook with her and she used shorthand to take notes. And that was a very important source of, um, you know, prime material for helping to build LBJ's political career. If you fast forward to November 22nd, 1963, the day in Dallas when JFK was assassinated, she had one of those notebooks then, took notes about what she had experienced while on Air Force One flying back to Washington. And her very first recording of those tapes is dated November 22nd, 1963. It's her first entry. She recorded it eight days after the assassination. And she kept going until January 31, 1969. So this means there are 123 hours of recorded audio and 1,750,000 words when transcribed. So that's the, 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 the first point to make. The second is that that material itself was fully opened by the LBJ library a few years after she died in 2007. And so by the time I started doing the research in 2013, that coincided with the, the beginning of the full access to the audio and the transcripts. She had published a sliver of that material, and still it was over 700 pages in 1970. But the material in the published book was not as full and not as, as important, I think, as what turned out to be in the material then released, you know, beginning about a little bit less than 10 years ago. That material was almost entirely unexcavated by other LBJ historians. And so I just, you know, it was kind of dumb luck that I started thinking about writing this book about her just as the library was beginning to release all the material. Yeah, and it's really uh, amazing material. You also have a podcast, which is in in plain sight. Is that right? Correct. In plain sight, Lady Bird Johnson, and it's produced with ABC News and Best Case Studios. Sunday, October the eighth, Liz and I left the White House a little past ten and flew to an airport in North Adams, Massachusetts. One of the pleasantest rides I can remember. Mayor greeted us. I was given a key. And we went quickly on into Williamstown, a picture postcard, New England City. At Williams College, her first stop is an event at the home of the president. We're hosting a luncheon for 60 people, the degree recipients, the trustees, all the faculty. It took me around to meet everyone, and then very soon we sat down. I was next to a very interesting man, Hugh Bullock. I gathered he was the chief trustee. He was quite outspoken in his approval of Lyndon. And that was one of the last words of approval I was to hear that day. Mrs. Lyndon B. Johnson comes to Williams College. President John Sawyer escorts the First Lady to the ceremony at Chapin Hall. 
She took no formal notice of a group of anti-war pickets who staged a silent vigil protesting the Vietnam War. The small campus is crowded with protesters. In the days before Lady Bird arrives at Williams College, half the professors and more than half of the undergrads sign a petition against the war, saying it diverts funds that are needed for urgent environmental problems at home. They arrive at Chapin Hall for the ceremony. The students have arranged a silent dissent against the war. Many are wearing white armbands over their robes. We took our seats on the stage. I looked out into the audience in front of me. The first several dozen rows were the graduating class in their black robes. And as I saw a white armband on the first one, I was not quite prepared for it. And I felt a quick pulse of emotion in my throat. I counted another and another. And the protest doesn't stop there. And it was at this point that some of the graduating class walked out. That was a clip from the podcast In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. Her voice is really compelling, at least it was to me. For you, what was it like to spend so much time? You know, the voice is such an intimate thing. Uh, It's one of the reasons I I just, I love radio, because I think it's more intimate than, you know, certainly than video or, or visual media. So tell us, what was it like for you to become so immersed in her voice? That's a wonderful way of framing your question. And I do think that the fact of her really rather beautiful and unique East Texas lilt was one element of of my being able to stay with her for so long and listen to all that audio. The second is that she's got a very, she's a very skilled and cogent wordsmith. And what was really compelling, I think any of us that are writers understand that taking a big body of material and synthesizing it into short, concise, descriptive paragraphs takes a lot of work. And what what we find in her is that these are her first drafts. She wasn't going and rewinding and re-recording or editing the transcripts and then redoing it. She had the ability to capture her experiences just as one-offs, taking all the material in. And I found her ability, her the fact that she would go, that her moods and her uh, voice and her humor and her judge of character and her nature writing, all of that was very compelling. And then, of course, also, as you said at the beginning, she's talking about one of the most tumultuous decades in American history, or at least recent American history. And so we hear her, for me, hearing her talk about Vietnam, about civil rights, about her husband's presidency, about her role in shaping all of that was just absolutely riveting and page turning, even with this raw material. And I'm going to ID you now. Uh, if you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Lady... No, we're talking with Lady Bird. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Exactly. Close family, a close family friend of yours, I hear. (laughs) Okay. We're talking with Julia Swig about her book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. Now, she was really remarkable, I think, for a first lady in that she was, well, in, in, in being a political wife, in that she was really a partner 
to LBJ. Talk about their relationship. Tell us a little bit about how it started, because I think the way it started kind of set the tone for the collaboration and partnership that that it was. I mean, she she was she was no wilting flower, in other words. Correct. She wasn't. And and I think I write in the book at some point that LBJ had really good radar for low ego, brilliant individuals. And she is one of them. And and I think that, you know, there were lots of aspects of her that were attractive to him, her mind, her, her, her elegance, her, uh, how literate she was. And she to him in the fact that he was this wildly ambitious man who saw her she was she loved the fact that they could dive in and talk all day and keep one another intellectually stimulated and then you know lbj as a young man was attractive i'm not saying attractive to me but generically kind of a tall dark and handsome guy so they did hit it off of course ladybirds um ambitions when she met him were not as manifest and large as I think they became as they they deepened their political and financial and business partnership. She always said that she, that he stretched her, but I think the reverse is the case too. Um, so that's that's one thing about the origin story. The other thing is that he proposed marriage to her on their first date. And six weeks later, forced the issue, basically said now or never. And she said yes. And they got married within, I think, on the same day. And that was that. And that was 1934. And they were married until, you know, for 30 years almost before LBJ died. There's so much in this book, and we we have limited time. So I would like to go to one of the things that most interested me, and is really something that is 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 really if any if people know anything about Lady Bird Johnson, it's her Beautify America campaign. But in this book, Julia Swig, and later in your book, Lady Bird Johnson, you reveal something I think few people know, which is what the Beautify America campaign was really about. It wasn't just about, you know, flowers on on the highway. Um, It was a kind of marriage of environmentalism and civil rights. And so so tell us all about that. So one thing I'll say is that that Lady Bird Johnson in 1963 comes into the White House. That's just a year after Rachel Carson has published Silent Spring. It's a year after... Stu Udall, the Secretary of Interior, has published The Quiet Crisis. American environmental consciousness in 1963 is very dim, and, and she is aware of that. So the word beautification, which is associated with her, in a way is this is a euphemism that she adapts, but very reluctantly. She understands that to build American consciousness about the relationship between how we consume resources, access to nature, industrial pollution, mega cities, transportation, the built environment, the natural environment and humans interaction with both, all of that was underdeveloped in the American body politic. She was um, 
Of course, in 1964 and 1965, and then in 1968, there were three major civil rights bills that were passed. And she understood, I think, clearly, because she was a Washingtonian as much as she was a Texan, being a Washingtonian, Washington was the most segregated and largest Black dominant city, majority Black city in the country at the time. But access to natural resources, natural parks, to nature in Washington, D.C. was very much segregated as well. And she was also coming off seeing how damaging urban renewal projects around the country had been, especially to communities of color. So I'm trying to do this in a in a synthesized way, but the essential idea, as you said at the beginning, was she was trying, especially in American cities, although along highways as well, to to show that civil rights, access to nature is really about environmental justice and to try those, tie those three things together using her platform in the East Wing and her relationship with certain pretty radical philanthropists and landscape architects to make Washington, D.C., especially along the Anacostia River, Black Washington, a place where Washingtonians could have access to nature without having, you know, just as white Washington Washingtonians had much more readily. She was way ahead of her time in this. I think so. However, her highway, her, or quote, I want to say in quotes, her highway beautification legislation, because legislation was proposed and it was very much linked to her, was a disappointment. Tell us about that. What happened there? Yeah. Well, you know, that's the, I think if, if you asked anybody what they associate with Lady Bird, they would say highway beautification. And Texans would say, well, you know, in Texas, it's extraordinary what she accomplished because Texas highways are beautifully planted and have been for most of the last century. But the highway beautification bill, which was passed in 1965, much watered down, had at its essence, actually, a pretty radical idea, which was that in the wake of the interstate highway system, the automobile industry, the cement industry, the billboard industry were essentially unregulated. And as a result, you had really grotesque aesthetic and environmental, um, let's say chaos and abandon with the construction of big interstate highways. So she was trying to get an industry that was not into regulating itself to regulate itself, both in terms of screening junkyards that were along American highways at the time, limiting the scale of billboards, which for a while were just enormous. You don't see that right now because as in part as a result of the consciousness around junkyards and billboards that she helped build, that now has been regulated. But it was watered down by a guy named Bob Dole and somebody else named Gerald Ford, the GOP tried to sort of emasculate Lyndon by calling this bill Lady Bird's bill. And it was, you know, there were, there were jokes about impeaching Lady Bird because a woman in the white house trying to take on large scale industrial interests through legislation, that was something that deserved to be vilified, right? Shades of Hillary Clinton much later. Um, And so it was watered down and it was watered down in part because the White House had other horse trading it was interested in essentially let it be watered down. 
So interesting that you mentioned Hillary Clinton because I did not include her in my list of famous first ladies. Mm. Don't know how that happened. Well, maybe maybe she would appreciate that because she her first ladyship was not her top priority at the end of the day, was it? <laughs> no, I guess not. But it does it really does point to the impact of sexism on uh on first ladies on on their impact on their ability to do what they set out to do i wonder if you could you know talk about how that affected lady bird johnson you know how did she come up and deal with that sexism of which she was of course abundantly aware who couldn't be how did she try to uh uh bypass it or conquer it yeah bypass impossible, navigate or conquer or manage for sure. You know, she she didn't use the word sexism. She and her women friends had a kind of understanding of their need to manage the men and their egos. Um, She was of a different time. She wouldn't ever have called herself a feminist, but I think boy, was she in the act, in the doing. And so one of the 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 things that's paradoxical about Lady Bird is that although LBJ, her husband, you know, we think of him as this kind of vulgar, philandering, domineering, old school Southerner, he also was very clear about his wife's power and importance, and also that of the other women that were working in the East Wing with him, in the West Wing with him. So in part, she dealt with it by simply being excellent. I'm not saying it was easy. Sometimes she had to fight battles over budgets where West Wing staff thought that the East Wing was, you know, really not deserving of the same treatment that the West Wing was. But what the two LBJs did, Lady Bird and Lyndon, along with her supremely important staff, uh, chief of staff and press secretary, Liz Carpenter, was there the first real... East Wing operation to knit together the West Wing and East Wing as a political operation. And that jointness in terms of policy, in terms of public affairs, in terms of communication, I think was a a way of navigating sexism and trying to overcome it. But at a certain point, you know, she never quite did overcome it. I think part of her the legacy of part of why it's so hard to see her as the powerful woman she was is because she also was so careful in making sure her image was so kind of traditional and female and stuffy and subordinate. Mm, Right. And she was anything but. Now, Julia Swig, you also, of course, talk a lot in this book about the Vietnam War. I mean, the war really complicated LBJ's legacy hugely. I have to confess, I was one of those people out in the streets going, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Of course. So how did this impact Lady Bird's legacy? And and asking you that, I have to say, I was I was kind of shocked that she called um, people like me, the Vietnam War protesters, fascists and a mob. So, which really seemed counter, you know, to kind of her wokeness in other areas, let's just say. Wait, did you say her wokeness? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. 
a very kind of curated wokeness. Well, the Vietnam question is, I mean, it, it's so complex for her. And I, I feel like one of the things that I learned in doing this book was to appreciate the complexity that faced her and that faced LBJ. I'm not saying that's a condone in any way, Vietnam, but just to contextualize all the different issues they were managing. And when they came into the White House in the, those first months of 1964, there were two things going on. One, they, and I say they, the two of them, because they talked about Vietnam all the time. They didn't feel on solid footing with foreign policy the way they did on domestic policy. They relied very heavily on guys like McNamara and Bundy and the Kennedy War Council that stayed that stayed on with LBJ after JFK died. And that team was pushing escalation. Yes, there were some lone voices like George Ball, but it wasn't who were saying otherwise. But they felt that politically speaking, they were going to have a hard time getting their domestic, very radical progressive agenda through on civil rights and war and poverty and great society if they didn't have that kind of hardline hawkish stance globally. Plus, they were they were kind of these American exceptionalists. They were Wilsonian idealists. They believed that if you could bring electricity to Texas as they had, why not in the Mekong Delta? They kind of believed they could reproduce the American experience abroad. And it really wasn't until 1967 that that began to shift. And you're right, Lady Bird thought of herself as a progressive, saw herself as a progressive. And there's this shift that takes place, which we try to track, especially in the podcast, where she kind of stops recognizing herself because as people like you and so many Americans are in the street demanding more on the civil rights front and protesting the war abroad and her voice is getting drowned out. She starts to not feel like a progressive. She's kind of got a more establishment mentality. And by the end of the presidency, you know, she does, as he does, take a more critical stand toward Vietnam, but mostly not. And it's, it's very, dis she feels disassociated from the country by the end of the time they're there. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Julia Swig about her book about Lady Bird Johnson during her White House years as First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson in Plain Sight. It's also a podcast in Plain Sight. Let's listen to another clip from Julia Swig's podcast, In Plain Sight, that illustrates the point. Lady Bird had been prepared for California to be hostile territory, ground zero for the counterculture, a hotbed of protest. But in Point Reyes, it all seems remarkably normal. I unveiled a dedicatory plaque naming this a national seashore. I shook hands through the crowd, all quite happy and genial. None of the ugly banners yet that I had been led to believe would appear at ever California stop. But the day's not over yet. Lady Bird heads back to the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco's Knob Hill, eats a roast beef sandwich in bed, and gets dressed for the evening. A little past eight, Governor Brown and Bernice and the Udalls came by for me, and we left for the opera. On the way, I couldn't help hearing chatter over communications about pickets outside the opera house. And when we rolled up to the entrance, there they were, chanting loudly, 
There was an aura of madness, a sort of mob spirit. Later, I read that some of them carried babies and some carried guitars. Here's that California she was expecting. Guitars and babies on the protest line, that aura of madness. And most of them carried signs that said, Ladybird, bring our troops home now, or Ladybird, beautify Vietnam. I walked in with whatever dignity and decorum I could manage. And I think it even ended up uh, tainting, well, certainly tainting even the domestic legacy. Sure. You know, a few people, I think, even remember the Great Society. And, and it was, it was uh, as you say, it was really groundbreaking. It was radical. Um, but, you know, we often think of the Clinton crime bill as a creative mass, creator of mass incarceration. But you point out that this started under LBJ. So here's, you know, uh, here's more of the complication. So talk about the contradictions between Lady Bird and Lyndon's civil rights aspirations and their so-called tough-on-crime stance. Well, gosh, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I wish there was a word that even more aggressively describe that contrast beyond the word contradiction, because it's just, it's so much more than a contradiction. You know, the first, well, we call, I think it's important to unpack the word riot, right? The first urban uprising in America that took place, that's the most noted one, Watts, was just a couple months after the civil rights, the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965. And from there, even as the domestic legislation putting more dollars behind poverty and health and really lifting up the floor on serving the underserved, even as that progressed, American cities were burning and the demands for more, they just couldn't keep up with it. And so the domestic politics start kicking in, right? Black Americans are quote unquote, rioting in American cities. But what are they protesting? They're protesting police brutality, lack of job opportunity, lack of housing, the kind of, um, you know, segregated access to nature that she was very well aware of, overall conditions being kept out of the housing market, the same kinds of things that are roiling the country and the racial reckoning today. But Lyndon, to ask, answer your question, by the time we get to 1968 and that crime bill he introduces in January is, although he's planning on very likely stepping out and not running for a second term, the Democratic Party itself is going to be in a political contest and the law cries for law and order. The demands for a tough on crime approach is something that this his presidency very much succumbs to. So he goes from sounding like a real progressive on race to sounding practically like George Wallace when it comes to law and order matters. And that's both, I think, heartfelt, but also driven by the domestic politics of getting the party elected again. And, and the last thing I'll say, Francesca, is they, the Lind Lyndon and Ladybird, really couldn't get their head around the fact that despite all of their progressive legislation on civil rights and the rest, country was still pushing, demanding more, right? They were reformers. They felt they had done a lot and they didn't understand the backlash among black and brown Americans. Right. 
So finally, what key lessons did you come away with? You, you've said um, when we were before the interview began that uh, this book took you seven years. Um, as you emerged from those seven years, what was some of the most important things that, that you felt you had gained from it? Well, as a writer, I would say that it was extremely rewarding to have come across unexcavated archival material about such a recent period of American politics and history. And it made me feel thirsty for finding more of that and finding voices who have been, I mean, the subtitle in plain sight, hiding in plain sight in the American archives. Um, I'm very keen to do more to find more, not necessarily for women that are so well-known as Lady Bird, but for the more obscure. Um, the second thing is having spent, as I said at the beginning of this interview, so much time in rooms as one of the few women in the room, it, it made me want to just say that her act of recording her history in real time, I think was such a huge public service because it showed her metacognition about her importance. And I say wherever I can that I think it's really important, especially in the digital day we're living in, that people record their experiences in real time, that they keep diaries, that they recognize their significance and find some way to record it so that historians in the future have real material to draw from as I did in drawing upon hers. Well, that's a, a wonderful place to, and um, it's just been so uh, such a privilege to talk with you, Julia Swig, about Lady Bird Johnson hiding in plain sight. It's a terrific book. I mean, the book really adds so much detail, and the podcast is so worthwhile, also because uh, you really hear the voice of, of Lady Bird. So I I, I regard them as as an um, an inextricable duo. So thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you, Francesca. It's my great pleasure. Oh, thank you, Francesca. It's my great pleasure. Julia Swig, talking about her biography of Lady Bird Johnson's years as First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson in Plain Sight. Let's listen to one last clip from Swig's podcast. It's about the decision LBJ and Lady Bird made to forego another run for president when LBJ's term was up. Now, in August of 1968, as Eastland is arriving at the ranch, the president is meeting with his Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Robert Weaver. Weaver's the only black member of LBJ's cabinet. Instinctively, I thought that Senator Eastland and Secretary Weaver wouldn't be exactly a cozy little company. So perhaps I could be useful by meeting Senator Eastland and driving around the place while Lyndon conducted his business with the secretary. Senator Eastland has come to the ranch to do a little horse trading. Eastland is chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The president has nominated his longtime personal lawyer, Abe Fortas, who's now an associate justice on the Supreme Court, as chief justice. LBJ needs the senator's support to get Fortas confirmed. But Eastland has another agenda. Senator Eastland was determined to talk politics. He said, you know your husband's going to be nominated, don't you? I said, no, sir, not at all. There's not going to be any movement of that sort. That is, not with any force behind it. And if he were, he wouldn't accept. 
Eastland is surprised at her conviction and her clout with the president. He seemed somehow taken aback, a little disbelieving, as though I had hoped it would happen that way, but relatively unshaken in his conviction. As a Democrat, Eastland is looking at the election pragmatically. Sure, he's got differences with LBJ, like civil rights, but the administration's poverty programs have played well in Mississippi. And anyway, there's no great alternative. As little as they see eye to eye, as much as lies between them, he would rather see Lyndon nominated than anybody now before the Democratic Party. But in terms of a last-minute draft in Chicago, another run for president for LBJ? No way. Finally, I drove back to the main house and with considerable relief saw Lyndon's convertible just going around the barn, conveying Secretary Weaver to the plane. That was from Julia Zweig's podcast, In Plain Sight. Find a link to the podcast at writersvoice.net. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Sign up for the free Writer's Voice podcast and weekly newsletter at writersvoice.net. And we're also on another platform now, Anchor FM. On August 31st, when President Biden spoke about the pullout of U.S. and allied troops in Afghanistan, he mentioned a pivot to what he termed competition with China and Russia. There have been a lot of hints coming from the White House lately that that competition is all about beefing up the U.S. military to meet what Biden and his Pentagon advisors see as a future existential threat coming from China's increasing weapons investments. But energy and security expert Michael Clare says the Pentagon and the administration are missing the real existential threat. Climate catastrophe will overwhelm both China's military and ours. His recent piece on The Nation is The Real Existential Threat is Our Overheating Planet. Well, Michael Clare, welcome back to Writer's Voice. Um, you've been writing quite a bit about the uh, the Defense Department, our armed forces, and the climate. You wrote a whole book about it, which we spoke to, with you about a, f- a couple of years ago. You just wrote an article, The Real Existential Threat is Our Overheating Planet. And what that is actually referring to are, is the increased drums of war, just as we're getting out of Afghanistan, the increased drums of war against China. So tell us about the thesis of this post in the nation. You know, if you look at what the Pentagon says day in and day out, when they testify before Congress and give press conferences, they say the greatest threat, greatest security threat the United States faces is that China is on a race to become a greater military power than the United States. And if we only give them time, in 10 or 20 years, they're going to overtake the U.S. to be the world's greatest military power. And then, you know, assume global domination and that we have to spend every last trillion dollars we have uh, over the next 20 years to prevent that from happening. And what I argue is that this is utter nonsense because in the next 20 or 30 years, climate change will be so intense and its impacts on China will be so great that the Chinese military will be too busy filling sandbags to protect Shanghai 
in other coastal cities from flooding to do anything uh, to threaten the United States. China is very vulnerable to climate change. We already saw that this summer and is going to get much worse in the future. And why, I mean, we're all, uh, every place on the globe is vulnerable to, to climate change. Why is China even more exquisitely vulnerable? China is like the United States. It's a large continental country, and it has a very large coastline that faces the Pacific Ocean, much as we face the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico, and we're feeling right now the impact of a super hurricane, Hurricane Ida, that uh, invaded our city of New Orleans and nearly flooded it and certainly knocked out power uh, to New Orleans. Much of the Chinese coast line from the extreme south to the far north is exposed to typhoons. And the typhoons in the Pacific are becoming more and more powerful, just as hurricanes in the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico are becoming more, more and more powerful. And the Chinese coastline is very low-lying. It's a, a lot like Louisiana Bayou country. It's, it's, it's very low-lying. It's very, very prone to flooding. And with climate change, the sea level rise in the Pacific is going to be very high. And most of China's coastal cities are going to be flooded time after time to the point where they're no longer habitable. That's the way it looks now. And that's just one of the dangers that China faces. Much of China's West, just like the American West, is very dry and is becoming drier under climate change. And you have vast areas of China that are becoming desertified with vast areas of desert and sandstorms that blow across the country and that threaten agriculture and everywhere, and water scarcity, just as we're facing in our West. So China is highly vulnerable to the multiple effects of climate change. You also say in this article, Michael Clare, that uh, China's many new cities, which have sprouted in recent years, have significant flaws in their design and construction that make them more vulnerable. Tell us about that. Yes, China has built dozens, literally hundreds of new cities of over a million population in, in, in its interior. These are intended to act as magnets for poor rural people who did not benefit from China's economic growth over the past quarter of a century or so. And the poor rural farmers and the like have been attracted to these new cities where there are factories and apartment buildings, giant apartment buildings and malls and subways all of these uh, accoutrements of, of a big city planted in the middle of nowhere where there were only farming villages before. And many of these were planned without any uh, appreciation for the effects of extreme weather events like flooding that is gonna occur 
as climate change becomes more intense and you have more frequent and extreme rainfall events, like those that occurred this summer in Xinjiang, a city in the middle of China uh, that uh, experienced extreme flooding. Its new subway system was flooded and people died because they, they couldn't escape. Uh, they were trapped in this subway tunnel there and the whole city was immobilized because the, there was no plan for drainage of storm water and the whole region was plastered over with asphalt and concrete. So the natural drainage disappeared. The, the, the rivers and creeks and lakes that were there before were covered with asphalt. That means when, when you have intense rainfall, the rain has nowhere to go and it collects in any low-lying areas like subway tunnels or highway, highway underpasses, which is exactly what happened. And all of these new cities are vulnerable to these kind of effects. Finally, you say in this article that the Chinese military is being deployed to deal with climate disasters. And the thesis of the article is that it Chinese military is going to be too involved with dealing with ever more worsening climate impacts in the years to come. What about the U.S. military? Are we also going to have to give up our addiction to uh, permanent wars in order to fight, in order for the U.S. armed forces to be engaged with fighting climate change right here at home? Well, exactly, Francesca. And in my book, All Hell Breaking Loose, the Pentagon's perspective on climate change, I write about how the Department of Defense is already engaged in such activities and is planning for a lot more of that in the future. I'm sure uh, that the Department of Defense is uh, heavily involved in rescue operations in uh, southern Louisiana at this moment in response to Hurricane Ida, as they have been in response to other recent hurricanes and storms. Uh, always uh, they have responded in the past, but as these storm events become more extreme and more frequent, the Pentagon is going to have to devote more and more of their military resources to dealing with domestic climate catastrophes, and they know it, and they are preparing for this. And the same thing is going to happen to China. The Chinese military, known as the People's Liberation Army or the PLA, was heavily engaged in response to the climate disaster in Xinjiang this summer. Uh, 40,000 odd troops were deployed there to fill sandbags and conduct rescue operations uh, when the flooding occurred. And this is going to become their common experience, just as in the United States. And that is, you know, I, I can't help but think that there's a silver lining in that, but really at too much cost. Yes. Well, uh, the silver lining perhaps is that the military, uh, the armed forces of both the U.S. and China may be more aware than other public officials and the public, for that matter, of just how 
dangerous climate change is going to prove to be, what a threat it's going to pose to what we call national security. Because the military, as part of its normal operations, has to think 10 and 20, 30 years ahead. What kind of threats are we going to face in 2030, in 2040, in 2050? And they have scientists who, who are telling them in 2030, 2040, 2050, climate change is going to pose an ever-increasing threat to U.S. national security. And I'm sure the PLA uh, is hearing the same thing from their scientists. So they may have a better perspective on this than other public officials, a more long-term vision. And maybe out of this uh, could come greater uh, understanding of the need to give up on warfare as a pointless, debilitating exercise and turn more attention to the climate threats to national security and what could be done to prevent those from happening and even cooperating in addressing the threats to climate national security. Well, that's a very hopeful note. Michael Clare, uh, your article in The Nation is The Real Existential Threat is Our Overheating Planet. We will link to it. And I want to thank you so much for coming on to Writer's Voice again to speak about it. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, Francesca, and, and um, I, I hope people will continue to pay attention to these issues. Here, here, Michael Clare. We spoke with him last in early 2020, just before the COVID pandemic hit, about his book on the Defense Department and climate change, All Hell Breaking Loose. Here's an edited clip from that conversation. You write in the book about a 2018 Department of Defense report on climate-related risk to defense infrastructure. What have we already seen in terms of impacts on infrastructure on our defense? Well, let's bear in mind that so many American military bases are located at the coast. Now, that makes sense because we depend a lot on our Navy to project power overseas and our Air Force to carry troops overseas. So a large part of the military infrastructure in the U.S. is located either on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. or on the western coast of the United States. And those areas are very vulnerable to sea level rise and to extreme storm activity. And on the west coast to wildfires. And indeed, in the past few years, we've seen very intense storms in the Atlantic that have destroyed, severely destroyed some U.S. facilities. And we've also seen fires in the West Coast that have attacked American bases there. So just in the past few years, we've seen tremendous effects of climate change on U.S. military infrastructure. And the risks are a lot larger than infrastructure, which I think is really the focus of your book. I mean, infrastructure is serious as, as it is because it means that the Pentagon cannot respond to national security risks. First of all, tell us what do we mean by national security? I mean, national security can encompass a lot of different things. So what are the areas of national security that you really broadly cover in this book? 
my book looks at climate change as best I can from the Pentagon's perspective. And from their perspective, national security is defending the United States from the threats to our survival and well-being. And from their perspective, the primary threats right now are China and Russia. But they see, looking into the future, that climate change will impede their ability to defend the nation from foreign threats. It will do so, first of all, by damaging infrastructure at home. We've discussed that. Also by creating disasters in this country, which will require a military response. But the military also sees that climate change is going to create chaos around the world, that the kind of disasters we've seen here will affect other parts of the world, probably in even stronger terms, because those other parts of the world may lack the capacities we have. In Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, there'll be massive storms, droughts, and floods, fires, and this will create a massive chaos, uh, pandemics, the collapse of nations, mass migrations, and this, they believe, will require constant U.S. military intervention abroad, dealing with small-scale conflicts, with terrorism, with pandemics, and in this way, divert their attention from what they see as the greater threat of China and Russia. And eventually, all of these things will add up together, that is, the the disasters at home, the collapse of infrastructure, global chaos, to what I call an all-hell-breaking-loose scenario in which the military will not be able to do any of its primary tasks because of climate change. Michael Clare talking with Writer's Voice in early 2020 about his book, All Hell Breaking Loose. Go to writersvoice.net to hear the full interview. You'll also find a link to his post for The Nation. Next week on Writer's Voice, we talk about Shakespeare, adaptations for the modern age, and a new theory about Shakespeare's main source for his plays. Don't miss it. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. You can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. And follow us on Twitter at Writer's Voice, all one word. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. Rhiannon.